Thanks for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. Grace changes everything. But what about the very real things in life that are broken and seem like they'll never be put back together? This past week at The Gathering, we asked the question, Does grace change our suffering? The band played songs by The Killers, Need to Breathe, Chris Davenport, and more. Let's have a listen. When there's nowhere else to run Is there room for one more sun? One more sun If you can hold on If you can hold on Hold on
things that I've done
Look, turning 30 is not that big a deal. Oh, really? Is that how you felt when you turned 30? Why, God, why? <laughs> We're the deal. Let the others grow old, not me. me? Am I overreacting to this? No, Rach, it's not just you. My 30th birthday certainly wasn't that much fun. And now Chandler. <laughs> I'm getting so old. Why are you doing this to us? <laughs> well, here we are. Just a bunch of 30-year-olds. Uh -huh. Wow, do you realize in 10 years we're going to be 40? morning um <laughs> so so Bo started uh so Bo started school this week he is officially a saint joe bear uh which i think for some of us is a good thing and some of us maybe not so much yes thank you for this corner right here um and thank you to saint joe for providing this wonderful place for us to be so um so so far at brown elementary school so good Right? Every day that goes by without a note coming home about him goofing off or being a class clown is a win, right? He is just, he is just a goof. And we're, and we're told that gets in the way of learning, um, which is what they told me too, so whatever. Anyway, on Tuesday this week, Allie and I met Bo at the bus where he did this very sweet and cliche run off the bus and give mom a big hug bit, right? Like it was very cute. Except um, all I got was a, oh, hey, dad. And he pushed past mom and slid into the front seat. So it's very confident, one might say. But uh, we dr we're driving around the corner to pick up Quinn from daycare. And we're, we're laughing. And he's telling us jokes and talking about his day at school and his new buddy, Jacob, and his sweet friend, Charm. It's a beautiful Rockefeller kind of afternoon until he gets hungry. And he starts digging into this backpack for a snack. And he pulls out the infamous Nutrigrain bar. Some of you know exactly where I'm going with this. You see a Nutrigrain bar straight from the box. It's a wonderful, delicious, and balanced afternoon snack. It's just enough fiber to balance out the sugar. However, a Nutrigrain bar has the structural integrity of wet sand. And if not cared for, <laughs> With the delicacy of the queen's jewels, the Nutrigrain bar will disintegrate with merely a grasp. And so this particular Nutrigrain bar had been in his backpack for six days at this point. Uh, and so he pulls the bar out of the bag and we're turning into the driveway and with the silence and fury of a nuclear warhead, the meltdown begins, right? It crumbles into his lap and with it, his spirit. So we open three Nutrigrain bars, all of which deconstructed. So um, at the time it took us to walk from the car to the kitchen table, we were at Code Red. Uh, and I'll tell you what, we're, we're making the claim here at Storyline that grace can change everything. It was not going to change that Nutri-Grain bar back, um, no matter how much I prayed. How often is life seemingly like that though, right? One moment, everything is exactly the way it should be. And then in the next it's crumbling into our lap and we're questioning everything we seem to understand about our reality. And, and y'all, we haven't even graduated to the even more problematic Nature Valley oats and honey double granola bar, right? You know what I'm talking about. I, you just think about those things, you're just covered in crumbs, right? Um, 
But really, how, how are we supposed to deal with the proverbial nutrigrain bars of our life? Because I find myself often looking to the sky asking, why God, why? As if he works for Kellogg's, right? It's basic human nature to seek a villain. It's, it, it, is, it is at the core of who we are. When life doesn't go the way that we want it to, it becomes very easy to question and blame whoever we perceive to be the most responsible for whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. And so I want to talk about that this morning because I get the sense that I'm not the only person who struggles with this. And if, the, and if I am, then just indulge me for a little bit. So inevitably, life is hard for all of us. Suffering is not optional. Now, we all suffer in unique and specific ways, but living and suffering seem to go hand in hand. Um, and suffering almost inevitably and almost always leads to doubt. Has anyone ever struggled with doubt? Man, I used to be the most confident person that I knew. When I was 24 years old, you would have thought I invented living. Right? I knew exactly how it worked and how it should be lived. And I had no problem telling you what I thought about it. And it seems like every year since I just get a little bit more scared, right? I'm just a little bit more cautious. I get anxious on airplanes like I never did before, right? I think about my bottom line way more than I used to. I question all of the choices that I've made in my daily life and my head is full of these intrusive thoughts about all these different little versions of what could happen next. It all started about eight years ago. I was in, uh, in the heat of seminary. Work was busy in good ways, but, but really, really busy. And Allie and I had started what was going to become a, a beautiful but long journey of building a family. And at that point, it wasn't going the way that we had hoped. And if you remember eight years ago, the world was getting a little bit nutty at that time. And so for the first time, I started to really, really question what, what does it mean to live in this world? What is reality? And what am I actually seeing and living in and being a part of? So is this really the way that it's supposed to work? Is this really what life is? There's this buzzword um, that's taken shape in the last decade within the Christian spheres of influence. Um, it's the word deconstruction. And it essentially points toward the, the dismantling of one's faith uh, in, the, in, the, in the traditional Christian way of life. And it often starts with the view that religion has caused more pain in the world than it's alleviated. Well, 2016, that was when my deconstruction really, really started. Uh, work, life, school, my podcast lineup, they all began dismantling my worldview kind of one episode at a time. And so in so many ways, I welcomed it. I was a willing participant in this deconstruction process, but it really, really rocked my world. And seemingly for the first time, I took a step back and I looked at this story, this Christian story, this Bible story from a new angle. I mean, so just for a moment, if you'll indulge me, let's take a step back and let's take an honest, literal look at this Christian story um, and take off those rose-colored glasses, and, uh, and let's, let's dive into it. So bear with me for a second. So let's just start by ignoring everything science tells us, right? Because there's this God who is one God, but really actually three gods that make up one God who breathe, and all of a sudden the moon and the trees and the orangutans and the mosquitoes, they come to exist out of nowhere. And then he breathes again, and, and people come onto the scene, and these people are supposed to be made in the image of God, 
but those people are less than God, but also the same as God. But then there's the snake who is evil and is now in creation, but God didn't create this snake because this snake is evil and God is only good, so this snake seemingly came from nothing and simply convinces these people who were meant to be little gods, but aren't God, but are God, that they shouldn't listen to this God who created them. And so they eat an apple or a pomegranate or a mango or tomato, whatever it is, because the Bible isn't very clear about what kind of fruit it was. But by eating this very unspecific fruit, they damn the entire world to suffering for the rest of life. And then this God who cast, who cast these humans out of his garden, who created them out of love and grace, out, he casts them out and he gets frustrated when they won't listen. And so he decides to then come down to his creation by the way of a 15-year-old girl from first century Palestine and then be born into the world as his son, who is God, but also human, but really God, because there's only one God, but one God made up of three gods. It's all very confusing. But anyway, the son of God, who is God, then walks on earth for 30 years before all of a sudden, one day deciding to reveal that he's got some pretty sweet magic tricks, like turning water into wine and walking on water and making mud and curing the blind. There's a lot to do with water. Uh, we're not really sure why. And then a bunch of Jewish pastors who don't like these magic tricks, they decide to kill him. But when they do, he doesn't stay be dead because in the ultimate magic trick, the Son of God rises uh, from the dead and after defeating the devil, who's no longer a snake who lives in a garden, but is now an evil distortion of a person who lives in a place called hell, where the Son of God goes when he dies, and supposedly he defeats this devil in the hell that he lives in, only to then rise from the dead three days later after dying, except we learn later that the devil and the hell weren't actually defeated because this God and his son, who are the same person but also different people, are, not, are, are going to send you to this hell to be with this devil if you don't believe this whole story without question or frustration, and then confirm that belief by dunking yourself in some water, eating some bread and occasionally some grape juice, and then giving 10% of your wealth to people who are more divinely gifted to tell the story than you are, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's wild. It is a bonkers story when we take it and it's, and it's literal. And I have to be real to you, when we boil this story down, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And this is where I found myself eight years ago. And this is an there's an incredible loneliness that comes with the moment where you watch your entire community and your childhood and your career and your marriage, they seemingly drift away with all the things that you once believed in. And it's very, very different, but very real kind of suffering. And at that time, I didn't feel like I could tell anyone. Like I felt very, very alone in feeling this way, especially considering like the trajectory of my profession, right? I was purely just trapped in my mind. And so I found myself holding this story in my hands and watching everything I believed crumble right in front of me. Logic and rationality and literalism, they were winning and I couldn't wrap my head around all of it. I couldn't make sense of things like hell or the fact that people suffer or the commission to ignore science, all within, within a God who is good and gracious and loving. And so I found myself in a place where I wasn't losing my faith so much as I was actively trying to get rid of it. So I went to Mike G in the beginning of uh, 2016, and I had this very conversation, right? I shared that story the way that I saw it, um, and I shared my questions, and I shared my doubts, and ultimately I kind of said, I don't think I can believe any of this anymore. 
I don't think I can, I don't think I can live within this narrow paradigm of Christianity as it's been presented to me at this point. And you know what he, you know what he asked me? He said, when can you speak next? <laughs> he saw the good in my questions and he responded to them with an incredible grace. And he invited me to wade into the deep weeds of mystery and see what was on the other side. And I'm not sure that my faith would have made it without that invitation. Now, I've in no way arrived at any kind of answer or conclusion or place of comfort, and I'm sorry about that. There are plenty of days where I wake up still struggling to believe this story. But what I have learned over the course of the last eight years is that arriving in answers and certainty, that these are false idols. That grace is found in the deep weeds, it's found in the mystery, and it meets us in our own darkness. Within this crazy and unbelievable is a, is a ridiculous story and a beautiful grace and incredible love. Whether or not it's history or allegory or metaphor, within it is a way of life that calls me to a greater grace and love and faith. And for me, it has become a daily choice to live in that grace and to love each day, whether or not I believe this story is true. Maybe you're on a similar journey. Maybe you're asking similar questions, or maybe you want to push back. I get that. But as we wonder together, can grace change everything? Does that include our doubt? Does that include our suffering? Can grace change that too? So in this conversation today about suffering, I can't help but think that, there's two, that these two things are related. It requires a great faith to believe this crazy story can be good for you. And, at that, and it's that same faith that can help us make sense of why bad things happen to good people. Because ultimately, that's what we're wondering, right? When things don't go the way that we hope or expect them to, we wonder, why do bad things happen to me? Because I'm supposed to be the good one, right? Like, I'm supposed to be the good person that these bad things are, happen to, are happening to, and that's where doubt creeps in. But I think it's important to understand that doubt is not the enemy here. It's, in fact, an incredibly important and critical aspect of our faith. You see, without doubt, we don't have faith. We merely have fact, which is not faith. And it's through our faith that we recognize the life-changing grace that's already flowing and working in all things.
say they hate us and they get so red in the head you think they're about to choke God can be funny It's only give you money if you just pray the right way When presented like a genie who does magic like a dandy Organs which is like Gemini Cricket and Santa Claus God can be so hilarious No one laughs at God in a hospital Thank you. All right. So as we consider the idea of suffering this morning, there's, there's two more disclaimers that I would like to express today. So first, um, first, I realize that there's people in this room for whom this conversation is incredibly poignant, right? You are in the eye of the hurricane. And if there's no end in sight, and the, la- and the last thing you want to hear from me, might, it might not be just hold on, or God's got a plan, or everything happens for a reason. I believe those statements are true, but hearing them is often, is often not as helpful as they were intended. Those things might not be good right now, and I hope you don't hear it that simply from me this morning. I can say this, there's plenty of people in this room right now who've walked um, with me through some of my darkest times, and as hard as it was to go through and suffer through some of those things, it's easier to do it together. I also can't explain why we, why we suffer the ways that we suffer right? Each of us has a beautifully unique perspective on the human experience, and not any two stories are the same. I can't explain that, nor am I going to try. I do hope that we can zoom out and take a 40,000-foot view of suffering and then maybe bring some clarity to its purpose. What I have this morning is, is merely a theory. It's a theory of suffering that's helped me make sense of this world and the condition that it's in. And, that, and this theory involves four critical beliefs or understandings in order for it to work. So the first is an acceptance that there is a God and that that God created and set in motion the world in which we live. Now the way that God actually went about that creation, maybe that's another question for another time. Maybe we have some doubts around that, or maybe there's some conversations we have around, around that. That's great, but at the very least, this theory doesn't work unless we can agree that there is a God who is responsible for the world and has acted as a spark of the world's being. So then we can then move on to the second idea, which is that God is love. If we believe in God and we believe that that God is the God of the Bible, then it seems reasonable that we might turn to the Bible in order to gain an understanding of who God is. And the common theme of the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testament, is that God is love. In 1 John chapter 4, it says, the person who refuses to love doesn't know the first thing about God because God is love. So you cannot know him if you don't 
love. It doesn't say that God is loving or that God is like love. It says that God is love. And I take that to mean that love is the very essence of God's nature. The very root of his foundation is love. Jeremiah 31.3 says, They found grace out in the desert. These people who survived the killing. Israel, out looking for a place to rest, met God out looking for them. And God told them, I've never quit loving you and never will. Expect love, love, and more love. And so it's now I'll start over with you and build you up again, dear Israel. John 3, 16, perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible starts with, for God so loved the world. Psalm 86, 15 says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Deuteronomy 7, 9, God wasn't attracted to you and didn't choose you because you were big and important. The fact is, there was almost nothing to you. He did it out of sheer love, keeping the promise he made to your ancestors. And then in this, in Romans 8, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that the Jesus, the master, embraces us. Maybe all those references are a little overkill, but I feel like it's really important to provide some proof from Scripture for this idea that the God of the whole Bible begins and ends with love. Love is first and love is last, and it's a love that we can never separate ourselves from. So we can't move forward in our understanding of suffering unless we can accept and understand and take faith in God's nature as love. So first, there's a God, and that God created us in the world that we live in. Secondly, there is a God, and that God created us, and he created us because he loves us. The third understanding is an acceptance of the reality of the world that we live in. Oftentimes, this is where we start, right? We start with how awful the world is, and then we try to parlay that with God's love. And I would like to make an argument that we need to reverse those things. We have to start with God's love for his creation, a creation that appears to be crumbling. Now, there's two kinds of suffering that, that make up the reality of our world. There's an external suffering, right? For instance, 10% um, of the world's population lives without clean water. This, this next one blew me away. 3.6 billion people nearly half of the world's population doesn't have access to adequate sanitation. Can you imagine not being able to even think about using a toilet if you needed to? There's 780 million people that don't have regular access to food. 25,000 a day die of starvation. 10,000 of those 25,000, so 10,000 a day dying from hunger are children. 10,000 children a day are dying because they're hungry. Moreover, an estimated 27.6 million people are active victims in sex trafficking, most of which are women and children. And besides all that, three million people were displaced last year due to natural disasters, hurricanes, floods, fires, earthquakes, tsunamis, humidity. Additionally to all of that, the internal forms of suffering that we don't see, right? This is one of the few numbers. I've done this bit before at Storyline. I list all the terrible things about the planet. Um, this is one of the numbers that's going up. 
Most of the other numbers are going down. This one's going up. 970 million people, nearly a billion people in this world are suffering from anxiety and depression. That's one in eight. One in eight people are suffering from anxiety and depression. And that said 23 million Americans suffer from drug and alcohol addiction. 17.5% of the world's population suffers from some kind of infertility. And last year, there, there was an estimated 1.9 million new cancer diagnoses, a number that's also going up. This world on paper, it's filled with suffering. It's a burning, broken, hurting place to live. And even if you're not directly affected by any of those things I just mentioned, the odds are that you know somebody who is or has been. And so we can't make sense of any of this suffering unless we recognize and are willing to recognize that it's a reality for all of us. And to make matters worse, there is often no reason why this happened to any one particular person. And there never seems to be an answer for why it happens to you. People are just walking in front of it like we're not recording. It happens. People were people. None of it's intentional. Never attribute to malice what can be attributed to incompetence. It's far more likely that they're all in their own worlds, doing their own thing. They're not paying attention to the world around them. And we all do it every day, whether you're driving, walking down the street. All of our lives are just as complex as everybody else's. Everything you have going on, they have going on. Nobody knows what everybody else is going through. We also need to be a little more self-aware and aware of the world around us. That was deep. You got to look deep to find the deep things. If all you ever do in your life is stay at the surface, you'll never find anything worth exploring. Are you real? I try to be. Are you an AI? No, not at all. Oh, TikTok. Um, are you an AI? It's a new, that's a new question that we're going to start being asked. Um, so number one, there is a God. And that God created this world. Number two, that God in his nature, at the foundation of who he is, is love. Number three, the world that that loving God created is full of suffering. It's broken and it's hurting. The fourth belief, the fourth understanding for all of us as we try to wrap our minds around the idea of suffering is if there is a loving God who created this world, in which there is brokenness and suffering, it has to be because it was worth it. This has to be the best possible version of this world. Because if it isn't, then what is the purpose in creating it? If it wasn't worth it, why would an all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing creator build it, create it, make it? Is it some kind of great torture experiment, right? Just to test us as puppets to see how much we can endure? No. If this is the world that a loving God created, then it must be the best of all possible worlds. So why do we suffer? If this is the best of all possible worlds, of course you can imagine a better one, right? But it, this is the best of all possible worlds. The way I see it is this way. God has a giant problem on his hands. God has to choose whether he will make us good or whether he will make us safe. Now, that doesn't mean that he can't make us both. But in order to make us both good and safe, God must then 
sacrifice love. Because in order to make us both good and safe, God must then take control over us. And control and love can't coexist. Control is not love. It's force. It's coercion. It's manipulation. And love can't be any of those things. So stay with me. I know things become very tricky as soon as I begin to talk about what God can and cannot do. But I encourage you to finish this line of thinking with me. I'm not talking about God's capability. I firmly believe that God can do whatever he wants. I'm talking about what God ultimately wants, what he desires for the universe. So let's think about it this way. This is the newest addition to our family. This is Quinn. And, uh, and as shocking and as upending as her arrival has been in our lives, she's stealing our hearts day by day, right? That was her first smile. Um, she's a little spitfire and she loves to giggle and her, and with her big brother and she loves to hold her mom's hand when she's eating. And I'll tell you, there is nothing like that feeling of a baby falling asleep in your arms, right? There's no other trust like it on the planet. This was true with Bo too, but it, it was impossible to imagine how our souls would be transformed um, in really beautiful and good ways and really hard ways as well. But they have been transformed by the arrival of this beautiful little stranger in our lives. And we love her so much and we can't wait to see the person that she is going to become. But Allie and I love her so, so, so much that we have in fact begun um, constructing an airtight padded bubble room in our basement. Uh, it's incredible, right? It's state-of-the-art, it's free of disease and germs and mosquitoes and carbohydrates and naughty words. And on the top of it, <laughs> we've put together the perfect diet to make sure that her body will never experience the pain of mal malnutrition. And we've spared no expense to make sure that every good and appropriate piece of pleasure is at her beck and call for her entire life so that she will never find any need to need or any need to leave this bubble. And we do all of this because we love her and we want to give her the best life possible in the padded bubble room in the basement. If that were true, you'd call the police on us, right? At least I hope you would, right? You, you'd have Child Protective Services at my house this morning, today, right now. And there'd be nothing that I could do to convince you that we weren't insane. There'd be nothing I could do or say to you to convince you that I actually loved her. Why? Because that kind of protection, that kind of control over another person, it's not love. No, Allie and I love this little girl so much that because we love her, we can't wait to get her into gymnastics and dance knowing she's going to fall, knowing she's going to get bumped and bruised and tears are going to be shed. And we're going to teach her how to drive a car knowing that one day she might get in a car accident. And we're going to let her have friends knowing that they're going to teach her naughty words. And Allie and I are going to do everything we can to teach her how to love, knowing that one day she will likely have her heart broken. And because we love her and her brother, we're going to try our hardest. We're going to do everything we possibly can to show them and teach them what it means to live life to the fullest, knowing that one day, no matter what we do, no matter what we say, no matter how many padded walls we put in the basement, that their life will come to an end. Now, why would we do all of that? Why would we expose them to all of those possibilities? 
It's because we love her. It's because we believe that a world in which she could fall and have her heart broken and scrape her knee is a better world than the one where she can't. This is God's great dilemma. This loving God of the universe creates us with beauty and grace and intention. And that loving God falls in love with us from the moment that he dreams of us. And it is because of that love that he makes us free, free to choose. God loves his creation so much that he is willing and he willingly and lovingly gives away autonomy and control over it and says, you get to choose how you care for it. It's because of love that God gives us the opportunity to be good through our freedom, which in turn means we cannot be safe, right? And therefore we are exposed to the possibility of suffering. And it's in that suffering that we ultimately find love because it's in the suffering that God meets us. God knowing that in order to maintain love, he must withhold control. So instead of taking control, God comes down to earth as one of us. God as Jesus takes it on, takes on the experiences of the human condition the very suffering of the world that he created. And not only does Jesus see the suffering of the world, he willingly endures it, right? In one verse in the Bible, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So not only did Jesus die a criminal's death on the cross, was he tortured at the hands of the Roman government? He loved doing it. He did it because he couldn't imagine doing anything else for the people and the creation that he loved so dearly. He wanted to show us that grace will win, and it's through that grace that all the suffering in the world will eventually come to the end. The Apostle Paul says this in his letter to the Romans. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. How do we do that? How do we rejoice in our sufferings? He goes on to say, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. Paul doesn't say that there will be no suffering. He doesn't say that if you believe in God, you will be exempt from suffering. Paul says that, if, that it is in the suffering that we find hope and the love that God has already filled us with, that he has poured out into our hearts. We find hope that there is joy in life despite our suffering. We just have to choose it. As, as we come to a close today, there's, there's another incredible story I want to share with you from the Bible. It's one of my favorites from Sunday school. Perhaps you'll remember it, or maybe you saw the Veggie Tales back in the day. It's the story of three Hebrew men um, in the Old Testament named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so there are these, these three men were living during a period of Jewish history when their people in their city had been taken over by a foreign power and a foreign government. King Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled over Babylon, he constructs this giant statue of himself and he demands that all the Hebrew slaves that were living under him bow before him as king and renounce their God. That doesn't sound easy. He warns that anyone who doesn't, want, who doesn't do it will be thrown into the furnace. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
knowing the risk of not bowing to this idol, they remain standing. Having already experienced the suffering of a lost way of life, a lost culture, a lost people, they probably lost friends and family members. They willingly stood knowing the suffering that they were going to endure. And despite it, they decide that the best life for them is one where they don't bend to this new king and his statue. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar does exactly what he promised, right? He ties these men up and has them thrown into a raging fire. But here's the thing. When the king looks into the furnace to relish over his power, and I apologize, I don't have any explanation for this, but the king sees these men in the fire walking around, and they're not alone. There's a fourth person that's met them in the fire. The Bible says it this way, the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. And then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and I threw into the furnace? And they said, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of God. When we willingly embrace our suffering, not bowing to the pressure of brokenness, but willingly find the joy that is found in the hope of God's love poured out through our suffering, we find that we're not alone in, our, in the fire. And it is in that fire that we find our heaven. Another in the fire Standing
Friends, this is God's world, and he created it with meticulous intention and grace. And he's given it us to foster and care for and live within, and he did it because he loves us. But that love comes at a cost. And now his creation seems to be burning, and on top of it, it's full of disillusioned men who say, only I can fix it. When in fact, it's grace and grace alone that can fix it. Only God's love live out, lived out through his creation can put it all back together. So may you believe that there is a God who loves you and created you with purpose. May you know that despite the pain and brokenness that make up this life, that grace is found in the midst of that hurt. And may you find heaven in your fire. And may you do everything within your power to bring others along with you. And may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Friends, have a wonderful Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. Have a blessed week.